Welcome back for another tonic discussion. We've got six of the seven of us here today. We've got Grant, Luke, Daniel, John, and Mark, and myself, Harrison. We're going to be discussing evil today, kind of a little bit of a continuation of our topic last week, where we kind of got into it at the end of the end of the show last time, because I wrote an article on a supernatural evil. Because over the last month or so, it must have been like a month, maybe over a month ago. How does supernatural evil fit into what you think about or what you write about? So after the conversation, I was thinking about it for a you know a couple few weeks trying to put my thoughts together. And that's the, this article is kind of what I came up with. Um, it's my attempt to kind of reconcile a more materialist view with a supernatural view and how the how the two how I see the two kind of fitting together and stressing what I think is the kind of the the supreme importance or the 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 ultimate nature of supernatural evil or metaphysical evil over and above what we see in uh, in the the world around us so that's a very just a a very simple simple look at the the overall framework of the article and I guess we're going to get into get into details and probably go off in a hundred other directions. So with that said, did anyone, uh, did anyone have like a, a starting thought to kind of get the discussion going in any particular direction? So I saw in the beginning, you, you had the definition of evil uh, from Zimbardi mm -hmm. and it's, you know, mm -hmm. Hey, doing all these bad things um, that you would typically think, and then specified that uh, against someone who's innocent. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, that really resonates with me from the whole libertarian angle because it's like non-aggression principle, right? It's not that you can't aggress against anyone. It's aggression against the innocent. But what also kind of popped in my head when I saw that is I imagine that a lot of people on the left view anyone who disagrees with them as not innocent. You know, they're standing in the way of progress. So they are guilty. And so then all of a sudden that justifies using that really good definition of evil. It justifies all these terrible things. Anything that you could possibly imagine, it's all justifiable towards the greater good. And it mm -hmm. ties in with utilitarian consequentialism and all that stuff. And then going into the metaphysical aspect of evil that you talk about i think that doing that you know that's the difficult part of the equation that separates i think good and evil it's, it seems like it would be simple but it gets complicated because it's who who's innocent that's a very mm -hmm. difficult epistemological question to ask you know what's the truth who's innocent are you certain do you have enough certainty or confidence in who is innocent and who is not that it can guide your behavior in a manner that you can be still consistent with the good? And I think that people are really quick to jump onto this idea of, quote, doing bad things to bad people. So like that's what like one of the special forces groups in the army has a saying, it's we... Uh, do bad things to bad people and i think that that idea is seductive 
that we do violence, we do, you know, we do bad things, but it's to bad people. Well, who decides who's bad? The U.S. government decides that's kind of dangerous. Um, Left wing academics decide who's bad. Equally dangerous. So those are just some of the thoughts that I had as I was reading through it. Well, that uh, that brought to mind, like to me, the show Dexter. Right? If anyone hasn't seen it, this idea of uh, this idea of a a serial killer who only kills bad people, right? Other serial killers or something like that, or or murderers or whatever. And so this would get back into the. I think we probably discussed this in the past, but I've written about it in other articles. Um, um, like this, I, it brings back the idea, this idea of moral relativism or moral realism um, and, and the different ways of looking at, you know, how we think about morality and, and ethics and, and conscience, because you can, you can, it, looking at evil just in that way without any further, um, you know, any further caveats or explanations, it's, it can very easily provide just a, a very thin rationalization, like you're saying, for just for wanting to do bad things or for having that nature that if, if you're a sadist and, uh, and, you're, and you're smart, you can say, oh, well, you know, if I, if I harm who other people think of as innocent people, then I might get caught and punished. But if I just harm the people that everyone else wants to harm anyways, then I, I get something out of it and they get something out of it. And from a, from like a, a moral, a morally relativistic perspective or a utilitarian perspective, there's nothing wrong with that because everyone benefits, right? The, the non-innocent people get, uh, you know, tortured to death and the sadist gets to enjoy life and, and find personal fulfillment in, uh, you know, in his chosen occupation. So, well, that, that, so that's just a question that gets raised for me in that department. It's like, there, there's got, for, for me, that, that does suggest that, there, that there's probably more to it, even than just, just doing harm to innocent people. Yeah. Um, well, from, yeah, for, I mean, yeah. from, a, from a utilitarian standpoint, um, to use that example, uh, you, you might almost conclude that insofar as everything has a sort of proper role in the world, um, if the sociopaths are sort of kept harnessed towards only doing bad things to bad people, then it's better they're actually, right? right yeah, I mean, they're actually performing a valuable social service, right? Um, so I remember like in Starship Troopers, um, in one of the more history and moral philosophy lectures that are, are peppered throughout the book, uh, the guy uses the example of a surgeon who enjoys cutting people he he likes the sight of blood right like he takes personal pleasure in this but you know he's not running around stabbing people randomly you know he's performing a valuable service he's doing surgery um so in that case you know is it really like a bad thing uh i think i think the first thing that you have to untangle because this sort of reminds me of steve martin's character in um Little Shop of Horrors, right? Like that, that's what we're talking about here. And like when when Grant says or when John says that this is fulfilling a utilitarian role, I think it was Grant who might have said um that they're fulfilling they're fulfilling some aspect of their being. But I don't think that's true. I think what they're doing is they're feeding a monster. And that monster that they feed gets hungrier all the time. 
In other words, there is no way to usefully use a psychopath, or I would just say a, a, an evil person, because that hunger does not ever get sated, it grows. And so it will never only be focused on bad people. It will eventually spread. And I think the reason for that has to do so, with... So, so to go back to the example of the surgeon, for example, right? So if he's just right. like a professional, he takes no, no pleasure in it, then he'll only do it when it's necessary and only to the degree that it's necessary. But if he's like a sadist, he enjoys the sight of blood, you know, uh, then he'll start looking for excuses to do surgery, even when it's... Correct. Ab yeah. Yeah. He'll and start doing surgeries what... that are unnecessary. Yeah, and that's what the utilitarians, they don't grasp. You know, they want to maximize, you know, well-being but they also maximize sadism, you know, if people are being sadistic, right? This also gets maximized in sort of in the in the morpho in the morphogenetic cloud or whatever. So I mean, it, it, you have to look at both things, and and I think it's a very good way of putting it that this actually, you know, this 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 gets maximized. It's a, it's a hole that that cannot be filled. It, it's very useful. Yeah, and, evil. Yeah, yeah, it has an optimization curve or a teal yeah. curve, I guess we could say. Yeah, and that's yeah. My kid, uh, my kid was murdered, but I'm pretty sure the serial killer that dismembered her uh, enjoyed it more than I enjoyed my kid. So the net happiness in the world went up. So whatever. Yeah, yeah uh, there's a thing, and and that's why I you know like because we talked about like uh, moral re uh, realism, and I think the the issue is um, that definitions of like good and evil like fixed definitions are just um uh, just don't work you know it doesn't fly i mean you can always point to these extreme cases right and i call them limit cases because it's like uh, for all intents and purposes you know you have a binary and it's uh, just a clear rule but uh, most of life just doesn't work that way right and and i think uh, the danger with defining morality is that um, it leads to, you know, what people have called the theories of good, right? And and you can see that, you know, in Marxism, in uh, in Nazism, uh, and also in religious, you know, totalitarianism, um, that's just, you know, how people always justify evil, basically having their their pet theory of of what is good, you know, what they think they have a definition, and then they it gets abused and. I think yeah, you, I mean, you look at some of the shit like um, that happened in Germany during the Hundred Years' War. Stuff like the Anabaptists gone up to, for instance, was you know horrific. Um, yeah, I yeah. mean the Reformation. You know, I mean Jesus Christ. Well, and there's an even I think there's an even more like weird and dangerous definition that gets misused, um, even beneath the one of good and evil or priority to it, and that's the and these are some of the things that I tripped up ChatGPT with which is the pulling apart of the definitions of what is physical versus what is metaphysical, what is material versus what is immaterial. And the, the thing about this is, and I tried to write about this recently, is that something that everyone agrees with is that thought leaves a mark, that the act of thinking, that consciousness in itself is in some sense physical, or at the very least, when we say metaphysical, we don't mean non-physical necessarily. So when I think about a subject or I read a book or I do any kind of uh, heavy intellectual lifting, literally that, that, that leaves marks in my brain. It changes the physical structure of my brain in a measurable way, in a measurable way that could be, that could be revealed through scans. One of, the, one of the key ironies is that the people, the neurologists who depend on, on brain scans, they're actually proving 
that the immaterial will exists. They're showing pictures of what of how it affects matter. And I think that because of that, like when we it's 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 fun and good to talk about the psychobiological aspects of evil, but we also I think need to you know investigate the possibility that what we're really seeing is an effect, not a cause. That when we see unusual shapes, atypical shapes, atypical pathways, what we describe as neurological damage, well, it's all damage, just like the musculature. We 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 perform wounds constantly, self-inflicted wounds on our bodies, and which our brains well, are a well, part of. Well, well, so like what kind of what kind of cause are we talking about here? So as as reading your your article on the arrow of causality and such, I didn't get all the way through because I just started it like you know before, well over breakfast this morning. Um, but like you know, are we talking efficient causes, formal causes, final causes? Because like there's all right. you know, there's yeah. It gets tricky. It gets tricky. But we know, for example, that it, an intentional will, right? First, we observe. That's the order of things. We observe. We think about it. Um, then we choose how to act. And then that leaves an impression on the material, um, whether it's the material of our muscles or our brain or our liver, our heart, like all of those things, the choices that we make may not be the only forces involved, but they seem to be the primary ones. In other words, that should be the default answer. The default answer is this guy was thinking a lot of evil thoughts, making a lot of evil choices. Ergo, look at his, what it did to his brain. But even that can be a, a form of op, of optimization, because there is this telic, this this opposite, this 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 curve towards destruction. And like you know, if we look at a picture of a brain of someone who destroys and destroys, um, and, and we see it's like, oh, look at all this catastrophic damage in his brain. That could all be self-inflicted. In the same way that when we go to the gym, we inflict harm on our muscles. We can also inflict, we do inflict harm on our brain. If we do it in a, in a reasonable way, in a strategic way, that le leads to a, a advanced strength over time. It certainly, it certainly could be self-inflicted, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. So um you know you no could, it could you be could, an, i could have got could, hit by a bus like i said in my example i could have got hit by a bus right i could but you could have been poisoned by medicines you, you could also right you could also have like a situation where um like to, to, to move that sort of step of like moral responsibility back one uh you know say you have like the evil man for whom it was self-inflicted but and he goes and sort of deliberately fucks with someone's brain in order to sort of break their psychology and thus make them start behaving in an evil fashion right um like just like given it maybe just given that little nudge that pushes them in the in the direction of being evil and then from there on it maybe it's it's self-inflicted becomes a feedback group but uh the, the right, usual, right. there's a lot of different sources yeah but, yeah exactly sure well, and this, and this is, there's also this a is layer of, of, of incorporating what, feedback yeah yeah and one of the one of the points i thought you made that was really good um is that the the whole notion of causality is um is maybe a little mistaken because it, it it's sort of like you're, you're you're trying to like focus in on this one point in a process when really it's a continuous process like every cause becomes an effect every effect start becomes a cause like it it there's there's no one point at which you can say like ah you know this is this is where it all went wrong you know um mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I want to. And then, well, of course, I think there is actually, though. I, I think there is, and that's what we refer to when we refer to the spiritual realm. That these things happen outside of what you know. Like again, like when we talk about physical versus metaphysical or material yeah, versus then, material. Then, then what we're really being, saying, what we're really saying is is measurable versus. Well, I, this, if you let me finish, if you let me okay. finish, I'm saying that we're talking about measurable versus non-measurable. That's what we really need when we say physical versus non-physical. And so there are some things, if they're outside of what we would traditionally call like Euclidean space-time, like dimensionality, um, if they, if those, there, we, we observe collisions that happen within our dimension, our dimensional space, so to speak. We can observe certain things because we are ourselves the observers, right? So it's sort of like um, in a strange way. Like it's it's kind of like as the source of observation within this space, it's very difficult. I'm not going to say impossible. It's very difficult to see things that occur at events, let's call them, that occur outside of time space, of space time. And so I think that that's what we're really talking to. We're, th- we're talking about things that are not normally perceivable or measurable. Um, and those can include X, I think, is as as Harrison return to Harrison's piece. Like when we talk about um, somebody mentioned uh, Dexter, um, and and unlike the series, I, I remember I watched some of the series. I kind of got bored, um, but I investigated the books a little bit. And the books, in the books, he talks much more about what he calls his dark passenger. And I, I think the series, the TV series, kind of strayed away from that. It didn't discuss so much the metaphysical aspects of what was going on with this serial killer, because he very much specifically described this creature as a separate entity, something that was riding. And I think that, you know, and and I think Harrison put it very well when he's talking about this is a higher order of being. We are not the top of the food chain. I agree. Um, We like to think of ourselves as, and, and from a certain level of observation, very low level of observation, we are in terms, and that, which is what we call the physical, but like okay, right, certainly okay, not so, at the top so of the I metaphysical chain. I, I definitely don't disagree that there's like a metaphysical level to all this. Um, but this then it sort of kicks the can down, ro- down the road a little bit and doesn't necessarily answer the fundamental fundamental question of spiritual of, of evil or spiritual evil, which is you know okay. So if you have if the ultimate source of evil is X, you know it's this thing in the metaphysical realm. Okay, well then, what's that source? What's the source of that that evil? Where did that come from? Where did things go wrong in the spiritual realm, such that there are entities in the spiritual realm that are spreading evil? Right? Um, is it are they evil from their perspective? Right? Like, uh, you know, there's a whole idea of like you know things that just kind of like eat negative emotions or whatever. Right? The same way that you know we eat cows. Um, okay, well we don't think of ourselves as evil for eating cows. Do they think of themselves as evil for for eating our fear and pain and suffering and such. Uh, you know, no, I don't think so. I, I mean, like, let's put it this way. Like uh, if we look at the stories of these sort of archetypes, these archetypal figures of evil, which I believe are real um, in, in a very, like we are talking about real entities. And if we examine their stories, um, particularly the story of Lucifer's fall, what we see is a rebel. That's why I think that that's the closest, you know, just it's disagree slightly with Harrison. I understand that these things are called all different kinds of names throughout all of time. The reason that we adopt certain terms is because we say, okay, that story makes the most sense. And in the story of Lucifer's fall, what we have is a very, very powerful creature, a creature, something that was created, a, a, a being. 
And so this very powerful being at a certain point said something along the lines of what Richard Dawkins actually believes, which is that there is no God but me. Um, and that is the true source of Dawkins' delusion, by the way, and why he promotes weird things like uh, he makes these pronouncements, these moral, ethical pronouncements about how um, how a, a baby's uh, uh, diagnosed with Down syndrome shouldn't be brought to term. That's unethical, he says. Um, I wonder if he's ever met one, uh, but I have, you know, and I can tell you very well that even within his limited utilitarian perspective, there is there is practical um, goods that come from such people being in our midst. For example, um, when they exhibit joy, and I don't, again, I don't know if anyone's ever been around one for a significant amount of time, but when they exhibit joy, it's the purest joy you've ever seen. And it reminds you of things. And I think primarily it reminds you not just um, to try to experience joy in a pure way, but also that we should protect the weak. And all of these things are good, and they can serve good and pragmatic purposes in upholding a good and just and noble society, a virtuous society. And so Richard Dawkins' brains are scrambled. I, I imagine if we looked at them, they would look quite a bit like catastrophic damage because he is an evil person. Now, is he under the influence of X? I would say at some level probably, but like in, in another sense, he doesn't need to be. He himself has transformed into he's transformed himself into something demonic, um, which is the ultimate goal. I mean, like if you are truly an evil person, yeah, you don't probably think of yourself as evil. I doubt that Lucifer, uh, in his own story, sees himself as the hero, just as Zeus is the hero in his own story in the Titanomachy, right? Like these this these so, icon these icons of the rebel. Like they are, they, they of course they don't see their, uh, Al Pacino at the end of, I included the clips at the end of my article. You haven't reached it yet, but the, the devil's advocate, one of my favorite films. Good movie. Yeah. And this, the, the argument at the end of it that the devil gives is a, is a passionate argument and he's, it's delivered beautifully. And I think accurate to answer your question. So R Rudolf Steiner um, if you, if you want, if you want to do like a, a taxonomy of spiritual evil, he had an interesting sort of, uh, demonology that he developed. Um, Lucifer played a role in it as, as a kind of inception figure almost. Uh, so, you know, L Lucifer is this spirit of like self-aggrandizement, right? Like you said, like there is no God, but me is kind of the way Lucifer looks at it, or you know, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, like these kinds of sentiments. Um, but after Lucifer comes Ahriman, uh, named for the, the Persian devil, which uh, Steiner described as kind of like the spirit of matter. So um, for Ahriman, it's like there is no evil because there's no consciousness. Everything is just dead mechanism. Uh, and it seeks to turn the universe into sort of pure mechanism to expunge consciousness entirely, which is a sort of more subtle level of evil than the sort of, you know, prideful striving after power and wealth that Lucifer represents. Um, and then there's a third entity after Alhuman has done his work, uh, whose name actually escapes me at the moment. Um, who is like just the spirit of pure destruction. So, you know, Lucifer's like, there's no God but me. Ahriman says, there's no God. Uh, and this third spirit just says, there is no, 
like it just wants to like to to tear down all structures re reduce everything to just pure void chaos um and that that's sort of like the ultimate negation the ultimate level of evil uh which i mean to my mind that that, that sort of like gets start, starts pointing towards like this you know what, what really is the source of evil right like and maybe it, it is kind of something which is intrinsic in the cosmos so you know tree of woe had that piece uh a month or so back um talking about uh these ideas from neoplatonism and and chris langan uh about maybe maybe someone else can like refresh my mind of the exact terminology he used but essentially you, you sort of start with the nothing you start with chaos like pure like what langan called unbound telesis i think and mm -hmm. from that because uh what is like nothing being purely unconstrained anything can happen essentially and then the absolute kind of pops out of that as this kind of like mirror image so it's like nothing generates god god then operates on the nothing to bring the something into existence and you sort of have this this cycle between the two um yeah, but uh okay yeah go go Luke. yeah yeah i want i just want to uh comment uh, a bit on this idea um uh of like um uh you know um what are you uh, is evil actually actually self-aware of being evil and that kind of ties into uh what you just said john uh, a little bit um with um uh this these different levels right um and i think uh good and evil should be seen as a as as kind of a progression as a, as a movement right so that's a, a better way of looking at it like a movement up or down basically right not like a, the achievement of a certain definition you know because we know that just never cuts it and is actually dangerous but more like a like a movement and the thing about that is it seems to me that you know everybody basically thinks they are good in a way right i mean even like the the most evil person they have their their whole stories you know how they how how it's actually good you know and how how they deserve it and therefore it's good you know i mean it's like um it, it just it depends on on the story which we tell ourselves and and the problem with that is that it's hard to see you know or rather it's like you can only uh per perceive evil if you are like already developed um a, a little further you know than than the evil that you see otherwise it's it's not possible really to um to distinguish it from from good you know if people tell you these these stories you know why what they're doing is is good you know their their favorite uh, theory of of good and so there are these different levels and uh, uh the you know like and there's also different levels of like the super evil you know and and the lesser evil and uh, the bombastic evil and the more cunning kind of evil and and it seems to me it's like uh, if we talk about morality, then it's it's basically a a call to to move upwards, right? To 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 walk the walk, to to walk the path, but you will change your your stance, uh, and and it's also something that people don't usually talk about, you know, with their left brain hemisphere, the kind of like thinking, right? It's it's that 
um, when you progress on the moral journey, so to say, um, you might tomorrow be someone who's further advanced and you will look back at today and actually from the new perspective, uh, consider you, your actions immoral, right? Even though they were like a, a necessary step on the journey. Um, and this kind of goes on and goes on, right? So so that's kind of how I see it. It's more like like a, a something that is um in in the in a process it's kind of like um uh has has a context and develops further as opposed to um you know we have these two definitions and and there's that and this would actually explain quite a bit i think both uh, uh, about the nature of good and 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 also about the the nature of evil and uh, i mean that's a conundrum right that we 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 always ask ourselves like do these people actually are are they consciously evil you know do do they get up in the morning and say okay i'm gonna like fuck the world you know or is it like do they actually you know believe uh you know that they're they they deserve it you know they, they sincerely believe it that you know they deserve the pleasure of like killing somebody and that it's actually like a good thing you know i mean and uh yeah and so so that's kind of like the perspective it depends how developed you are basically what i'm what i'm saying uh it depends on that what you can actually see what you what you perceive so i, w- I would like just interject and say it's probably not go ahead john speaking of a cat go, go john cat cat cats are running around you know like just like torturing and killing small animals far more than they need to in order to eat um like they're essentially little serial killers it's it's quite horrific actually what they do but is a cat evil yeah from the perspective of a mouse or a bird yes definitely but certainly not from the perspective of a cat but it's uh, but uh, and of course um who is evil is the ones who worship cats and i think that that's what we need to really wrap our heads around because oh, oh, fucking what, egyptians wait, 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 man <laughs> fucking egyptians yeah the egyptians the Egyptians were evil and they worship cats. Yes, that's all true. Um, but to get back to what Luke was saying just for a second, I do Their think it's possible. nihilotic rites, <laughs> unsuited for do... any true Roman. But if we, took about, if we talk about religion and like the idea, the concept of an evil religion, yes, I do think that they exist. And yes, I do think that adherence to it can see themselves as evil in the same way that we see evil. In other words, and I forget which serial killer it was. It might have been the Night Stalker. It might have been Son of Sam. It was one. Of, it was certainly one of the ones that described a voice, that described um, something that an entity that was separate from himself, that was telling him to do bad things and things that he knew were bad. It might have been both of them, actually. Um, in, in other words, that he was being commanded to some degree in order to, to perform evil acts. That some part of his being un- understood to be evil. But in in the pursuit of the power that doing evil would offer him, and I think I think I hope it was Night Soccer because like Ramirez, I mean, if you look at the entire story of him, what you do see the picture that emerges that he was extremely lucky at times, and when I say like he would go about doing his campaign of of murder and sacrifice, and like there would be strange little things, strange little coincidences where he would escape where somehow something would happen where, and, and it happened in Bundy's case as well. I know that he technically was the author of most of his escape routes, but like there are strange things in a lot of these cases where you say maybe something else is like sort of helping these people. 
like maybe maybe something maybe to some extent this power that they that they worship and that they want to attain that's being promised them in return for these sacrifices um i think those people can see themselves as evil but also just really really want that power and maybe have witnessed some of the effects of it and maybe think ah if i do even more i'll gain i'll gain even more power to pull off these miraculous escapes um, I'll get even more assistance from this spiritual creature, this X. And uh, and and to some extent, that may be true. It's just not their power. It's sort of like they they I think the the fundamental trick is is that they say, well, this power can be yours. It's like, well, no, that power will never be yours. That's something else doing it and and pretending sometimes that it's yours, but it never is. Um, and if that's the model, if that's like the 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 operating theory behind all of this, then I think that we could say, like, hey, uh, let's throw metaphysics out the window. These these beings are physical. Or they have the same physicality and same effects that thought has on matter. Um, maybe we could say that these are unbounded intellectual bodies, um, which is itself a strange thing for us to consider. But, of course, if we believe in the concept of, of souls, then we already know that that's the case. Um, and so that 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 in other words, intellect and and uh, action can be unbounded from the most uh, handy set of tools available, which is, of course, like hard matter, you know. Um, but we also know that the particulate matter of the universe is not all hard, um, that there are bodies that we can call bodies that are not maybe theoretical or just like. Uh, to the degree, and maybe John, you can speak about this um, in your capacity. Well, I mean, from a scientific you, perspective, when you when you get into like uh, like quantum field theory and such, you start like you know looking very closely at so-called particles. Like you actually find that they're they're, they're fields. There there is no particle, really. Um, it's it's this sort of like vibrating energy field uh, or like probability field. Um, which doesn't necessarily have a defined location in any at any given time. It's, it's sort of spread out in, in space. So, yeah, even supposedly hard matter actually sort of dematerializes when you look at it closely enough. And it's and it's strength and like there is strength in hardness. Like I, I believe that as hard as as beings in possession, let's say, of hard materials, like and that get harder again if we work at it um, on any level. Our material gets harder, more rigid, more well defined, um, uh, stronger, um, and 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 that is the result of creative destruction, which I think is like when we talk about Shiva or when we talk about um, there are there are gods. Uh, supposedly, and 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 um, and archetypes of creative destruction, and I think I think that's the kind of creative destruction they're talking about. You know, if, if we're all modeled by damage, if all so-called hard material hardens through damage, then 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 as hard beings, like we are strong, and like a lot of these other beings may be, in a certain sense, weaker than us, although in another sense, maybe more powerful in terms of their will and their intellect which is where the greek version of demon comes from that's the that's the original that's the origin um of the term where they were beings of earthly knowledge right that you would seek out that you would literally seek out you would hear their voices and they would tell you about the world and they would tell you useful things about the world about the hardness of material 
um, and about the ways in which it could be used and even about abstractions like mathematics. And so like, if that's what we're referring to, and I think that that's why it's still a good word. I mean, like, again, I don't want to disagree too much with Harrison, but I think because of its multiple provenances, it is a good word. And it's something that also, I think people just generally believe it. Like even a cursory glance at the entertainment landscape of the last, I don't know, 100 years will tell you that like, it's a concept that people still believe in. They still are, they can at the very least suspend their disbelief long enough to watch a horror movie about demons. Um, and I think that's because there's something in us that recognizes that this is a real phenomenon, that this isn't a fairy tale or a metaphor. Like we're yeah. talking about something that's real. And like the atheist, I think, can even like understand that as something that could be potentially real. You know, they might not like the term because they don't like the religious, um, you know, the, the religious uh, um, aspects of that term. They might think like, well, that's going to if I say demon, that that's going to intentionally mean that I mean all of these other things and concepts, which I don't necessarily believe in and that, you know, that are tangential to it. But like but like um, it, coming up with a better word is hard. Because the word has, again, both that Greek provenance and, and it survived into its sort of Christian interpretations, mostly intact, I would argue. So, Mark, you said atheist, so we'll take that as a cue to, to jump in. Um, so, you know, we were talking earlier about neurophysiology and relating that to musculoskeletal physiology and damage and hardening physiological adaptation um and then trying to get into the weeds on exactly what's going on at the material level that corresponds to these phenomenon and i'd like to propose taking a page from ludwig von Mises's human action and praxeology which he didn't even invent but helped formalize and engage in a little bit of methodological dualism in order to sidestep some of this stuff and just say, hey, acknowledged that exactly what's going on in terms of not being particles at the fundamental level, but a bunch of fields interacting, something's happening, it's there. That's not the appropriate level of analysis to understand what's going on. So I, I think it's important to acknowledge that it's very straightforward that there's a bi-directional relationship between neurophysiology, which is the structure and function, and behavior and thought. Thought's a behavior. You know, thought corresponds, you know, it's hard to think of it like that. You know, thinking of cognition as a behavior, usually we think of behavioral as, as something external. But that's what makes it so difficult to disentangle. It's a bi-directional relationship. Structure and function is directly influenced by, you know, thought slash behavior, and it's constantly evolving. And I like using methodological dualism and saying, okay, like this is how, how that works exactly, hopelessly complex. So let's not use that as a level of analysis to understand what's going on here. Um, but what does happen is in that process, something about it, whatever our neocortex does, I think it can be simplified pretty accurately to say that it moralizes our self-interest. And this goes back into what Luke was saying about how everybody has a story about how they're the good guy. I agree with that. 
because our neocortex moralizes our self-interest. But where does X or demons come in? I think where that comes in is there's certain things that you can do, certain, certain thoughts and behaviors that leave rents open in your soul for demons to enter or X to enter. And if you allow that to happen and X gets inside, what it does is it serves to warp and transform your self-interest such that it's no longer aligned with natural law and that it's aligned against natural law towards short-term payoffs to fill short-term, not long-run long self-interest where those payoffs are predominantly based on perception. And so then this ties back into the whole late stage bureaucracy thing, the fact that in a pathocracy, essentially you have a parasitic class that parasitizes the healthy aspects of civilization that arose from people being aligned with natural law. So people endeavoring to understand nature as it is and live within the confines of the laws and rules that are imposed by nature People thrive, civilizations rise and succeed based on being aligned with natural law. But that prosperity provides a, a very attractive target because aligning with natural law, understanding reality as it is, is difficult. It's much easier to trick yourself into believing that you understand something and to set things up socially to benefit from a perception as opposed to benefiting from reality. So I'll give myself as an example to, to make it concrete. I'm a physical therapist. Now, it's much harder for me as a physical therapist to make somebody better in actuality, to give them the tools that they need to self-manage and to feel good and perform optimally for life than it is for me to do some sort of procedure, some sort of passive thing like soft tissue massage or give some ineffective stretches that really don't have anything to do with what's going on with that individual and have them keep coming back to me because I'm not, I'm not getting better. I'm not getting them independent and they're going to keep paying me as long as they, I give them the perception that I'm helping without actually helping. Right. So that's that's the temptation. Right. And everybody in every profession, every field, there's always that pull. There's always that attractive option to chase the perception and the immediate payoff. At the expense of what is ultimately best and what is ultimately should be your purported raison d'etre, you know, like, why am I a physical therapist to, to get people better to improve people's lives it's not to do a transactional thing um and and make make money you know so i i think that if you think about it in terms of keeping the level of analysis tight harrison's article is actually perfect for this because he talks about the logical foundations and how you to have good if there is good, you have to have evil. Beauty only exists because ugliness exists. 
this kind of logical foundation is the same thing that's the basis of praxeology, which the Austrians use to understand economics. I think that you can apply that same thing to the spiritual domain to try and understand the difference between good and evil. And it doesn't like it allows people that are atheists and whatever traditional religions to use a common language and see the same things. But I think it ultimately comes down to being aligned with natural law. And then the trick becomes like, yeah, that's a simple definition, but what is natural law? What is reality? What is truth? These are all the things that make it so difficult to talk about and understand because there's disagreements over that. And then the extra layer of complexity is we all have different subjective values. Well, so, okay. So like the, just to, just to interject for a second, because you talked about beauty and I think that, and beauty and ugliness as like, say like some sort of um, uh, diet. And like, I, I would say that Aquinas might say, well, no, no, there's less beautiful, there's more beautiful things and less beautiful things. And we could say that that's that that all exists on one side of the equation, right? Layers of beauty, degrees of beauty, um, and he would say degrees of goods at the same time. I'd say that that's on one side of the line. That continuum or those those um, measurement systems exist on one side. The opposite of beauty couldn't can be called ugliness, but it doesn't just mean a regular kind of ugly. Like it means destructive. Like ultimately, it means it means something it's the opposite of the opposite of beauty isn't ugly as we know it to be where we say like well that one looks better than that one that one sounds better than that one it's 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 a completely others the the coin is uh, completely flipped over where it's anti beauty where it is desecration uh vandalism um we could call it uh some sort of catastrophic mutation like not and I'll let you continue Grant but I just wanted to interject and say like I'm not sure that like if we say good and evil are opposites and they are like, it's sort of like it's, it gets out of that, uh, uh, out of Aquinas's realm of the greater and lesser goods and gets to something that specifically I will damage this thing in order to destroy it instead of strengthening. I think it's something like that. Like it's sort well, of think- like, I'm not going to lift weights in order to make myself stronger. I'm going to cr- be crush myself under a truck. Something like that. I, I, I think there's an, I think there's an episte- there's like an epistemic asymmetry, um, kind of at the heart of this. So, you know, Grant, you're talking about like, um, you know, staying aligned with natural law, and I think that's that's really key. So, evil to me seems to always involve some kind of foundational misunderstanding or lack of awareness or blindness to the nature of reality. Sometimes it's uh, a blindness to the internal nature, sometimes to external, um, you know, a lack of a lack of understanding of long-term consequences or full context or, or what there's always there's always kind of something, right? Uh, and to whatever degree you have that lack of awareness, you uh, are out of alignment with 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 nature, with natural law, with God, you can call it whatever you want. Um, now, on the other hand, if you have that, that sort of full awareness, then you sort of understand evil as well as understand good. 
but evil does not necessarily understand good. In fact, it, it's very likely that it does not understand good. Uh, so another way of putting that in sort of more theological terms is like, you know, God understands the devil, the devil does not understand God uh, in aesthetic terms. Um, if you understand beauty, if you if you can recognize beauty, if you know how to how to create beauty, it necessarily follows that you can recognize ugliness, uh, and you know you would know how to create ugliness if you so wanted to, um, and how to avoid ugliness. But if you do not know how to recognize beauty or how to create beauty, uh, then you can only produce ugliness, um, and in fact, you know you look at like sort of like modern art for example you know this is the kind of like deliberate ugliness of so much of it uh and they very often will simply deny that the beautiful even exists they say something like oh well it's in the eye of the beholder it's all just relative you know it's all it's, ar it's all arbitrary um, it's a social construct um, it's a social it's a social construct think... yeah yeah exactly right right what, yeah, what, as I, as though as though their statement that it's a social construct is not also a social construct. Um, yeah. Well, what you're what you said about not knowing evil, not knowing what good is, I think that that's obviously true. People on the side of evil, you know, do you shorthand? They assume that everyone else has untoward motivations they can't imagine anyone as a paragon and they assume that this is impossible so they look at anybody on the opposite side of an issue of them and they say it's impossible for them to be uh genuine they are cynical grifters all of them and you see a lot of this in the in the modern political discourse uh, but I, I want to just finish off what I was saying about uh, subjective value and values being subjective, because I think it's it's important when it comes to that morphing of self-interest against natural law. I think you know, we have subjective values. They're all different. And those values can change and they can be morphed. And John said something about self-awareness. I think that's really key because there's certain people that I think get into a feedback loop where they're locked in to evil because if they don't have the self-awareness and they're doing these certain things that are so destructive and they don't see it, then at a certain point, if they see it, then there, it becomes impossible to moralize their behaviors. It's overwhelming, one, right? Yeah. Once you get to that point, it's like the event horizon for, you know, goodness. Maybe, may, may, maybe. Although, you know, I, I think your Christians would sort of say that um, they, they, they can point be born to Paul, again. Yeah, they have the. They yeah, have the, exactly. They, they point to like Paul's Paul's revelation on the road to Damascus as a canonical example. Right. Where you have a very evil man who, you know suddenly sees the light and everything changes, you know? And I think that, it, that, that that actually is a real psychological thing that can happen where, um, but it's, the thing sudden... is it's, it's, 
it's very painful, right? And therefore, it's 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 yes. rare. You know, the 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 farther you are gone, basically, basically, the harder. I mean, the more painful this kind of transformation becomes, right? I mean, it also becomes super powerful, but it it's also like uh, uh, painful to the degree that it, that it's almost impossible because you have this whole revelation about yourself, right? Um, all at once basically and you you once you realize it then it all comes falling apart and you basically um uh, for the first time see yourself you know as the evil bastard that that you are basically right so th i think that's kind of why it's it's extremely hard and even unlikely uh, unfortunately but that's also why from the religious perspective um you have these stories right because uh it's i don't know if it's always possible but it's it's still there there are like super extreme cases of that i think i, I think you Chris, could speak to this personally a little bit but oh go ahead sorry i was just gonna say go with christianity i mean one of these is interesting there it's like the whole the aspect of death in the rebirth you know and, and even being something that with some of this stuff you have it seems like a like to borrow the story, you know, from uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice, the Disney movie Fantasia, where, um, you know, the, I don't know, the, the, the I'm vaguely recalling it now, but the, uh, you know, where, where there's this process that's set in motion and then it, it goes beyond the point where it's, it's no longer useful to the point that it's harmful, but it just keeps going, you know, and there's, there's this, uh, I was trying to use an analogy, you know, if you have a, a composer or a right brain type of right hemisphere dominant, you know, you have a composer that knows when each note should be played. And then you have maybe, or when it, each instrument should come in. And then you may have a left hemisphere dominant person who represents maybe the player of a particular instrument who maybe wants to, who who is useful or good only insofar as he plays at, the appropriate time which means he's there's going to be times when he's not going to play so it's like a um you know where it can go wrong is if a person wants you know using that metaphor of a of a symphony you know the the oboe player wants to play constantly you know he's upset that he's not getting more playing time you know relative to the flutes or the violins or whatever so he just plays at inappropriate times you know you you have almost something like that where a person who you know they in their limited you know well this instrument that i'm playing is good and so therefore i'm going to play it more often you know and it ceases to be good and so maybe others in the orchestra try to get this you know renegade oboe player to stop playing so much and he becomes embittered and you know it's like you know these people are just hating on me because they don't want me to you know get as much playing time as them so he you know fights against them to play it's always the guitarist more. in the band what's that it's always the guitarist in the band <laughs> yeah well you know i mean the thing is is like there's there's a kind of death, so like, true the guitar the guitarist is lucifer literally where you you have to st stop asserting you know what you perceive your self-interest to be in in a, in a you know, if you're going to be part of this bigger symphony and it's going to work, you you know, and it's almost like a, a form of death in that sense. But sometimes maybe literally like if, if uh, you know, in the case of somebody who's like, you know, this may come up in war, uh, you know, somebody that gives their life for to save their 
you know the others on their team or whatever you know like they maybe they jump on a grenade or something like that like the you know to save the lives of others that they're with right like there's this you know where evil seems there seems to be something where it's like no i'm not gonna die i like this refusal to recognize a higher order above whatever the self is and then promote the self-interest to the point that it becomes this destructive force and then can double down you know and just refuse to give up give an inch you know um you know in the story of paul i guess it maybe it illustrates that like he was a sort of death for him in a way like you know this previous identity that he had according to the story you know he's this pharisee zealot you know persecuting the church whatever and uh you know, after that, it's like this total reorientation of his, you know, he even uses those terms, you know, like a, a new life, you know, he's died in Christ, that kind of thing. Um, but anyway. Uh, well, so it's like catharsis, right? Isn't isn't that the provenance of the word catharsis? Saul of Tarsus? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it no, certainly right. sounds right. Um, but in any case, but yeah, that was what happened, a cathartic episode that struck him blind. And like wh when I read read the story, I always try, and John knows this, it's like I always view history and stories uh, from a filmmaker's perspective. So I try to place myself there. I shoot a little head movie about it. And I always try to think, what is it exactly that he saw? You know, like, like the artists will depict it as some bright shining light from the heavens, right? But it's like it's the desert in the middle of the day. There's going to be bright shining light everywhere. So what was that light spotlighting? What was it in that moment that came together where, where he was able to pull all of those puzzle pieces of the universe together in one sharp moment that said, oh, wow, I've got this entirely wrong, not just wrong, but upside down, the entire picture of reality, which is a kind, you know, I imagine would strike you blind, like in the sense that it would absolutely um, uh, even, even change your biology to some degree like something as powerful as that i think does have the um the the capacity to radically change the material of your brain of your body um and so like when that's one way that's one way that we could see the visual world the, the spiritual world rather is that it's just that that a bolt out of the blue and that can happen um and it could be a bolt from god and that seems to be the way that it often happens this catharsis um, but I think that there's another way, and I think that I experienced it uh, personally, and I think that this way is that you can make a very big mistake. Uh, you can make a very serious error in judgment, and not just one error, but compound it again and again um, with other errors in judgment, that you could lead yourself uh, or be led down a road towards um, something that Again, I, you know, when we talked about the age of dragons, I forget if it was offline or online, like uh, um, last week, uh, the mistake that scientists made, uh, made where they said, well, no, we're, gonna, we're not going to admit that there were dragons. That would be horrible to ever say that these were dragons, that the artists were right all along, even though these beings have been extinct from before, you know, we have human skeletons, essentially. Um, they wouldn't admit that error. And so another error that I think that they don't admit is that when artists depict demons, it's typically as what? As mists and shadows. And I think what artists again discovered, and the scientists will never admit, is that it's not that they're completely immaterial. 
But again, we're looking at, we're studying a phenomenon, a, a, a structure of being that is quite a bit weaker. You know, and like even the Bible talks about the weakness of Satan, the weakness of demons. You know, um, uh, in Enoch, it was, uh, you know, I, I uh, what was the, what was the phrase? What was the line in Enoch? I have destroyed you and, and, and cast you as ashes upon the earth. It's something like that. It's something like, you know, and, and again, if, if people don't believe in or understand um, reality from the perspective of, no, there is intelligence and there is matter and like they can exist in, a, in, in different distances from each other across space time. In other words, it, it's not, intelligence isn't the product of matter, it is its master. And if you more, don't see okay. the priority that way, you're going to be very confused about a lot of things that you see in the world. I would have been totally bewildered, and, and I was in some ways, by some of the stuff that I saw and experienced, um, uh, and, and certainly did not have any kind of clinical explanation, let's say, for it. Anything that could be um, reproduced in the experiment that I've seen. Um, uh, but go ahead, Dan. You were, well, I was just going to ask you, you were talking about like the in, uh, difference between intelligence and matter or, or, or material versus you know, a kind of intelligent will or whatever, and demons being maybe non-material or like a mist. Uh, I mean, a couple of things. One is, you know, if if in taking that, I wouldn't say non-material. I'd say weak. I would say weakly bonded. Would, would you say immaterial. that that um, that like the say angels or a god? You know, using that Christian framing, that as that would appear in this realm would be different uh, one and then two you know there's the passage about the devil or paul saying that satan can appear as the angel of light you know uh, i mean i i get what you, you're saying that the demonic seems to you know not be able to act in this realm like as a physical mm -hmm. agent uh, except manipulating someone who does have a physical mm -hmm. body no, I wouldn't say that at all. As a matter of fact, no, 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 my friend. Okay. No, I think that absolutely, like any other intelligence, they can possess material. And the ultimate goal is to possess, you know, again, what we see as the top of the food chain. Uh, and what I believe um, Harrison called agents of God's will in his piece. That's what we are to a degree. God works through his agents, which are so, which are these spectacularly evolved and developed bodies that we have, right? Because these are our tools, and they are the tools of God to some degree. Um, uh, certainly, we have will. We we have free will because we must because because God is to some extent the ultimate expression of free will and intelligence. Um, and 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 so, if but to say that something is weak and weakly bonded isn't to say the same as saying that it has no strength at all that it cannot interact with material. I think it does. I mean, like I said, thought interacts with material. It does that. It shapes our brains. Yeah. It makes them oh, all I, I guess within the context so I, of this realm, you know, like if, if you know, using an analogy like to the matrix or something like that, like if, uh, you know, if, um, if you have a computer simulation and then outside of it, you have, I don't know, the people who program it. I mean, they can interact kind of indirectly with whatever is inside that, simulation by changing the code or you know uh and it's a bad analogy maybe but you know would would you say that acting within this realm that both good and evil are kind of 
like they're in they're acting indirectly in the sense that they act through you know people or or, or you know beings within this world that are you know are materially perceivable I... within this world like maybe we can't perceive through the physical senses you know these spirits but be they good or evil um but we see the maybe the effects that they have by way of their impact on the people who, you know are, are being well, thought, that we can perceive physically in this world so let's say thought has a physical property to it which i believe it does it definitely has a physical impact so like let's say that there's nothing that's non-physical in the world which is something that i kind of believe like i that makes sense to me that there's nothing that doesn't have some physical property because otherwise we wouldn't be able to observe or measure it, let alone to use it. So let's say that thought has some impact, um, some physical weight to it. Because again, we're talking about, as John said, as we all agree, there is no such thing as particles, right? There are only fields. There are only, there's only energy in, in, in a variety of different speeds and measurable quantities, something like that. And so I would say that, well, yeah, like, like, sure, like thought, since thought is so lightweight, I would think inserting thoughts into somebody's brain would be like the easiest way. Like it would be the, 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 the way that would be the most accessible, the most directly accessible, the requiring the least amount of work. And remember sloth is one of the deadly sins. So I imagine that most of these creatures are very lazy at the very least, but like, but certainly, like, there are, no, I have seen things where, again, physical effects, uh, absolutely directly verifiable by other people that were around me, where it's just sort of like, well, how the hell did it smash a tape? I don't know. I don't know. Like, is, how does somebody ball a fist? How does something, you know, and, 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 and try to, you know, in, in a moment of anger, exhibit strength beyond, or, or, or say, say a mother in a moment, in an adrenal moment when she's trying to protect her child, how does she lift the car? You know, like there are, there are, there are aspects of physicality where it's just sort of like, I think emotion and intent play into it. And if you piss something off, yeah, it might be able to do much more than just kind of whisper to you in your dreams or your waking thoughts. It so, may so be able to manifest in like a, a something like a very physical fist or claw or organ. Uh, I have a couple of examples of that, but you know, I'm not asking anyone to believe me. On the other hand, I'm just an anon on the internet. But I absolutely have uh, seen it myself, and I'm not particularly religious, guys. <laughs> there, there, there was a an anecdote about Aleister Crowley, how he was like walking around Paris with a someone who didn't believe in magic uh and so crowley was like oh well magic you know that's just like you know the ability to make change happen in the world in accordance with your will and uh the guy was like yeah it sounds like some nonsense to me and crowley says all right you see that guy across the street there i'm gonna i'm gonna make him fall down and so his his companion says it's like all right like you know like I'm watching. So then Alistair Crowley, like, you know, runs across the street and push physically pushes the man down. Comes back and says, see. Um <clears throat> Yeah, he's you know, well, he's a real jokester. I mean, like, you know. <laughs> well, it, it was it was it, it was funny, right? But uh but it kind of like gets to this point of like you were making like, how does someone ball their fist? Like exactly how does that happen, right? Like how is that any less magic? than a table shattering 
with no apparent physical cause. Well, what was the physical cause that caused that 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 caused the fist to ball in the first place, right? Um, right, right. And it's yeah. and then again, like the material that you're most directly in control of, the the the, the quickest weapon to hand, essentially, or the, mm. the quickest tool for good people. But it's just sort of like that's what the brain is to some degree. That like that is the quickest tool to hand. Like it is involved specifically for the purpose of carrying out our will. It is it is the seat of consciousness for a reason because it is it's multiplexing capacities. The um, it's it's potential for like high speed organization and routing of action and choice. Uh, uh, all of those pathways and like and, and again we reinforce those pathways every time that we do well, something. I would say, I would, say I, would be tra- I would be I would be careful there. The, the brain isn't just a tool for the will. Like that's that's certainly one of its functions. Um, it's also a tool for just perception, for for sort of you know un- understanding reality. And actually, I think the whole is, head is the the whole head is well, the, the eyes, no, abs- ab- ab- the ears. They're all organized in the same, and it's it, all it, maximally it's all- efficient. It, but it's, the, it's, the reason it's I, the same so, location. But I, I, I but exactly, and it has to be. Right? Um, but I think this is actually like really important to the overall topic because if you sort of have, if you sort of take the view of like, oh, like the brain is just there as a tool for the will, that's actually like one of the one of the steps towards like going down like an evil path, um, because you're not, because then you're not paying attention to reality as much as you should. And it's more likely that you're going to fall out of alignment with reality because you're only going to pay attention to those parts of reality that you can instrumentalize uh, that seem immediately useful to you. And you will only pay attention to them insofar as they are useful. Uh, and then you're not going to, and then there's going to be a lot that you just don't see um, because, you know, you're like, ah, oh, it's, it's no, no help for me right now. So why pay attention to that? Uh, and then you become blind and you start doing things that you don't even realize are bad things. Uh, and you just, you, you go down that path, right? So you, you sort of have to always remember, I think, remember that the, the, one of our main functions here in this reality and is, is to understand, um, and then to act, not to sort of just just to act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I want to, I, I want to put some thoughts together. So as everyone's been talking, you know, through the the entire show so far, I've been just been, I've had all these kind of responses and notes that have come up. So I've just made a, a couple bullet points or a few bullet points. And I think they all kind of fit together. So I want to try to put these together. So I'll ask uh, you guys to indulge me for a few minutes just to see if I can get through them. And this kind of I can piggyback right on what you just said, John, about um, not seeing. You know, there are things that, that you won't see. And this ties back to to the idea of that you also brought up about good being able to understand the good and the evil, but evil not being able to, to understand or know the good. There's this kind of asymmetry going on. So in response to that, I, I would say that that I agree with that, but that I think that on some level, it must not be true. So on some level, there must be an awareness, like um, we can, we can say it's akin to an unconscious awareness of the good. Because, well, for one reason, being that, um, you know, in, in order to do something the opposite of something else, you have to have at least an, some kind of unconscious awareness of what that thing is so that you don't do it, right? 
otherwise you'd just accidentally stumble upon upon the good every once in a while and, and see it every once in a while. There's this kind of blocking process that's, that goes on. And I, I relate this back to, well, th this also ties into the idea of salvation. So why is salvation possible? Why is it possible for someone who might previously have not been able to see the good to then have a revelation and see it? I think it's because on some level they on some level they were aware of it, even if they were totally consciously unaware of it. And and so the way I'm going to tie these together is that it comes back to perception. In that perception is always selection. That there's there's a ton of data that we're always receiving, and we we select what what we what actually comes to our awareness for various reasons and of course probably the most visceral and the most basic is just the physical survival of our bodies so we're aware of things that are immediately relevant to our own physical survival and this ties back to shows that we did on mind matters like probably years ago now whenever we first started a couple of years ago i don't know on john carpenter and first sight and this also ties this this is also very similar to whitehead's philosophy and probably also Langan's and that is that on on some um, in a very real sense everything from every particle to every being is influenced by the entire history of and the entire present of the entire world so everything is everything is related to and takes in and makes and makes a selection based on relevance of all of the data in the entire world. So every particle on some level must be aware of the position of every other particle because they're all connected and their own actions depend on their relative position in space. So even just from that very, very basic physical level, we're aware of, um, like, we're aware of everything. Everything influences everything else. And this this is what White, Whitehead called the causal nexus, and that's the all of the causal connections that everything that combine into everything. So this gets back to Mark's article where he's saying, well, what is the cause? We look at all these different things. There's all these different things. Well, Whitehead Whitehead would say, all of that stuff, everything that we can possibly identify as a cause, is part of the causal nexus. This connection of 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 all of these causal connections we we have we we get information from we get um influence from all of the particles around us all of the other people all of our own thoughts all of our all of our own history all of the histories of everyone else that's that's influencing every that's influ influencing them and influencing us and all of the ideas that are on this higher level on this higher metaphysical level and then there's this selection process that takes place where it's like okay well the vast the the vast enormity of physical data in the universe is irrelevant. So I can just shut that off. Every, every being, every center of consciousness can just shut off and ignore the vast amount of reality around it because it's irrelevant. It doesn't, we don't need it. We don't need to know what's going on in some other galaxy or some other solar system to, to live our lives. And it becomes almost, com almost completely irrelevant except for some very basic spatial awareness um, you know, for our, for our physical matter. And so on, so that scales up to this level of, well, what is good, you know? So some people are, ca cannot see, do not understand what the, what goodness is, cannot see it, cannot see this natural law. And, but on some level it's influencing them even only by providing a contrast to give their own, you know, their own evil perception weight that it's, this is what, it, this is what, this is what I'm all about. 
and the only reason that what I'm all about makes sense is in contrast to this other thing, which I'm totally blind to, that I don't want to see. But it's still there under the surface. And so this gets back to a question that, that Grant asked, is like, well, what is the natural law? We've got all these different conflicting values and, you know, well, what is it? Like if we can, we might be able to agree that it must be there, but how do we actually figure out what it is? And this ties back to something in my article. And um, this is something that, uh, that Mark highlighted in his, in his article and gave a good, um, a good reason why there's a bad way of, of thinking about this. And that's the, that's the, 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 the kind of what for Lobachevsky, I think was a stunning coincidence that he discovered. He discovered that, oh, well, every person that I look at who has committed something that we generally agree to be evil happens to have damage in their brain of some sort. Now, that's not to say, like Mark was getting at, that we can say that that, that damage causally, you know, caused their actions, caused their evil. I think that's, that's a backwards way of looking at it, like Mark made clear. But it's a very stunning coincidence that the things that we happen to think of as evil just happen to... to to correlate in some way with damage to the brain. And I think that uh, Lobachevsky makes this clear in, in his book in a few spots where it's like, okay, well, what's that mean? It, maybe, maybe that's actually a big clue that we can actually see the natural law pretty basically. It shows up in a very basic way. And like Mark said, in damage that it's not, it's not this totally nebulous thing. It's like, oh, well, maybe they're right. Well, maybe they're wrong. No, like damage and its association with evil is actually pretty identifiable. And, um, and it kind of stares you in the face once you just look on this very basic physical, like biological level. There's all kinds of other questions about what's going on, you know, causally and, and how this all fits together. But that's a pretty big data point right there. And so I, I I guess those are the most of the ideas I wanted to put together. Maybe one more. This was one of the first ones that, that came up. Again, I think it was something Grant said about this bi-directional nature. When you're looking at, at matter and, and thought, um, I think it's very easy to get, to get stuck in extremes. Um, you know, you've got the extreme materialist atheists who's like, like your genes cause everything. Like that, that, that choice that you made, that was caused by your, gene, by your genes. Like there, there was no thought involved. That was just a straight direct, a straight direct causation, um, like a causal pathway. But then you've got the kind of more idealist view where it's like, um, well, everything is produced by thought. And that like the, almost like matter doesn't have um, much influence at all. But I think that there's, that we need to keep in mind the, not only the bi-directionality, but that in, in, often, in, in many cases, it will be like, both will probably have equal value. And in some cases it'll be, it'll go more to one and more to the other. And in regards to humans, I think this is an important thing to take into account is that probably not everyone is, let's say, born with the same um, capacity for free will or for intention. Um, so that something that for, for one person might be, like a, uh, take an effort of one to like, as Mark said in his article, to like read another page in a book. Like that might take, be like effort one for one person. And it might be like an effort 10 for another person. Or for, for another person, it might just be like impossible. They, they might not have the, like the, the physical context necessary to, to, to even be able to, to do that very, what for someone else is a very simple thing. So basically to, 
the one of the one of the pitfalls I would want to avoid is taking a thousand people and just assuming that that they will all have the same capacity for for choice and willpower at the outset. So it might take some it might take one person a whole hell of a lot of like willpower to even get to the the level of being able to make some of the decisions and choices that for another person just come naturally. And for that person, they're going to have um, different challenges and different, um, um, yeah, well, different, different challenges, different um, things that they'll have to strive towards and to, to, to get to, to get to different goals. Um, and of course, that might sound really general, I have like specific things that I'm thinking of, but, um, you know, I, I might just have to write an article to, to lay that all out. So those were kind of my final thoughts trying to wrap up things that might not have been like directly said, but that's kind of how I've been tying them together as we've, as I've been listening through all the, you know, all the great thoughts that you guys have been sharing, because it's been really, really a blast hearing what, what all of you have to say about all this. Thanks, Harrison. Evil is like pornography. It's hard to define, but you know it when you see it, at yeah. least if you don't have brain damage. Um, yeah, or even and if you do, actually, just a lot of uh questions that you know, I guess it lead to further discussion because there's a lot of loose threads to tie together, and uh, you know, so it's been an interesting conversation so far. I'm sure there's more to say, we could probably do another one of on this topic. But um, to everyone who's watched or listened, uh, thank you very much for joining us for this. Uh, be sure to subscribe if you haven't already done so, hit the notification bell if you're on YouTube. So you get uh, alerted whenever we do another one of these and join us next time for more tonic discussions on the nature of good and evil and anything else. Uh, and of course, on the about page on YouTube, there's a link to the link tree that you could connect with each of the participants of this tonic discussion. Hear more of our, our great ideas on different things. But anyway, thanks uh, to everybody and y'all have a great week.